All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? This is Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. I'm broadcasting now from an undisclosed location, still out, still out in the world, far away, surrounded by water. Surrounded. Can you hear that? That's not static. That's the ocean outside of my window. A double header today. I got a shorty with Dylan Brody. He's a comedian, friend of mine. He's got a special coming out. Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood, premiering on the streaming service Next Up on February 14th. Go to nextupcomedy.com. And also uh, the amazing Bill Paxton, who uh, you all know from uh, Aliens, from Weird Science, from from Big Love he was in, Apollo 13, True Lies, Tombstone. Great. Bill Paxton's going to be here. So yeah, so that there you go. I've set up the show. I um I also want to take a moment to uh to say uh um that a, a friend of mine a guy who's been on this show, a great rock journalist, Mark Spitz has passed away at the age of 47. I have no details. I just found out myself and I didn't find out in a personal way, I, d- I don't know what happened, but it does seem to be true. Uh, he was a very intense guy. He was very engaged. He was a very, led a very chaotic and crazy life. He's a very uh, uh, wild spirit, man, up and down. And uh, he's, he's passed away, and it's a sad thing. And I just wanted to say uh, rest in peace, Mark Spitz. I also want to direct people. Uh, as we usually do in these uh, somber situations to uh, the repost of the episode I did with Mark. Um, A WTF episode will will now be again in the feed if you want to uh, introduce yourself to Mark uh, now that he's gone or if you miss that. It's out of respect that I do it. So, So what? I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship with a bully before, but I have, I've been in in many relationships with a bully because I'm a bully. I understand it. I've had to do a lot of work on myself to tone it down. It comes from insecurity, comes from narcissism. It comes from uh, a need to be loved and and an inability to love. There's a million things that, that, that cause bulliness, but they, they, they're never satisfied. And the, and I'm speaking from my own heart here as somebody who has struggled with this type of stuff. But I'm just saying that, you know, many of us are uh, in a, a fairly involuntary relationship with a, with a pretty intense bully and they just keep coming. They just keep coming. They just keep trying to knock you off your, off your, uh, your grounding. They try to knock you off your sense of self. They try to dis, you know, destroy your sense of reality to, to get you to a place where you don't know what's up or down, and then they can feel, you know, they can feel superior. They can feel like they have power. They can feel like they can get something over it on you. But, but if they're usually, if they're not narcissistic, they, you know, once they get you to that place, they apologize shortly thereafter and try to take care of you. I'm not sure that's in the situation we're all in, but, uh, but I'm just saying that the only way out of that is to, uh, to somehow get away from it to find some space to get out 
to pull your sense of self together, to re-engage with life, but remain vigilant and, and do what needs to be done for yourself and others. So I've been out here on the island, and it's been very up, up and down. It's been up and down. It is very relative to uh, my engagement with um, information coming in through my phone. And also the phone thing. Why don't, if these phones are so fucking smart, why, why, don't, why aren't they more intuitive? Where's the intuitive phone that, uh, you know, you get on and you pop open your browser and it just says, hey, maybe give it an hour. How would that be? Or, or you're looking at it and it's like, yeah, you know what? You've had enough for now. I think you've had enough. Or maybe it just says, you know, we're all worried about you. Take a break. You're, 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 you're in over your head here. We all have to allow ourselves to, to have lives. You got to make time to connect and, uh, and appreciate and spend time with others and talk to others and stay engaged, right? I mean, Jesus, I'm, I'm hiking today and I saw a sign in front of this pond. There were four ponds. We're on this hike and there's a sign that just says, no fishing, do not introduce foreign fish. And I'm thinking like, well, this thing has really gone too far, this ban. This, I mean, this is crazy. I mean, it was already crazy. Do not introduce foreign fish. My friend Dylan Brody uh, stopped by to talk a bit about uh, what he's got going on. He's got his special, Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood, premieres on the streaming service next up. But okay, so this is my conversation with, uh, with my, uh, my friend Dylan Brody. Dylan Brody, I haven't seen you in a long time. I think it's been three years, four years. You seem to be putting a lot of time into your attire. I always put a great deal of time. Well, I know the last time we, we were here, I think we talked about you once carrying a sword. I did. I carried a sword in college <laughs> I, I, as a fashion accessory. Uh, so I know. You, you like to make a bold statement. At, at, to say the most. <laughs> I, <laughs> now it's a three-piece suit, but not a dandy. We're not a dandy. We're a, it, it, sort of a, a mixture of a Old West and professor. British gentleman professor, the, the, oh. the lapel jacket. And notice that the phone is, on the, watch is on the chain. watch chain. Uh-huh. Um, so you got a plan. I, I have to always have some affectation going huh. uh, so that if I'm at a party or at a meeting yeah. and feel awkward. You want to be make sure you feel the most awkward possible? No, it allows me to feel as though I have chosen who I am in this circumstance. Yeah. And now if I feel awkward, that's their problem. Interesting. So yeah. you say, like, I'm going to trump your awkward with overdoing it. Uh, that might be all it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might be all it is. Also, I like clothes. Yeah. Of course you feel uncomfortable because look how I'm dressed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Or Isn't it amazing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like I like to have everybody, regardless of where they're working, feel as though I walked in and classed the join up. <laughs> okay. For years, I was a, a stoned, angry, political stand-up comic. Mm. And then I quit smoking pot and took 10 years off. Right. And reinvented myself as a humorist and storyteller. Mm-hmm. And had started out when I was doing that, doing it in a, you know, a studio alone without an audience and was starting to take it out into the world again. And as I took it out into the world again, I found the narcissism rising in me Mm -hmm. and began to explore that in a lot of the stories and talk about it and acknowledge it. You meant you felt a great deal of uh, the rush of self-importance. 
The rush of self-importance, the desire to have other people acknowledge my the quality of my work. Yeah, how the, good uh, you are. Yeah, yeah. I had been on the East Coast uh-huh. and had had a conversation with my father. At that time, he was stepping down as associate provost for the arts at MIT, and he was going to go back to teaching theater at MIT until last year when he finally retired. And they hired me to host the party at which he was stepping down. So I was going to be the MC. I was going to bring up a lot of people who were going to speak. I did physics jokes. I did a bunch of stuff. Then at the end, I closed with an improvisational thing where I, I take first line, last line from the audience, and then I do different playwright styles. So I did a monologue in the style of David Mamet, and uh-huh. I did a monologue in the style of William Shakespeare, and then I did a monologue in the style of my father. Uh-huh. And I don't usually do my father because yeah. no one's ever heard of him yeah. outside of you know a s- certain small community, but... Uh, for this occasion, it was right. Yeah. And the thing went stunningly well. Yeah. His friends appreciated it. Yeah. Yeah. As did he. Yeah. He said he didn't know that he had a voice as a playwright until he heard me do the style. <laughs> now of he's writing a show. Um, so the well, narcissism he, runs back. He is a playwright. Runs down the line. Yeah. He's always writing a show. Yeah. So the next day, I'm in the car with him, and there's a long silence, and he said, what are you thinking about? And I said, well, the show went well last night. And he said, Yes. And I said, I'm trying to figure out why I keep trying to fish for compliments. And he said, oh, that's because uh, as a performer, you're always experiencing the world as the object of someone else's experience, not as the subject of your own experience. Mm. And that set my brain on fire. And I started to think about that. And there have been a lot of thoughts and stories that have come out of that one sentence that came out of his mouth for me. But uh, you wait your whole life for your dad to say something relevant. Oh, he's, he's, no, he is irritatingly relevant far too often. Oh, Oh, it's so frustrating. Uh It's very hard to get ahead of him. But uh, it started to crack the the narcissism for me and shift the way I looked at the world and how I approached my work and how I approached other people. Through your real bone at this juncture in your life. Yes. But it meant that I needed to re-examine the stories I was writing because now I couldn't keep playing up narcissism which had become part of my shtick right and the last time i gave up my shtick which was i'm a a liberal angry pot smoker yeah it had taken me 10 years to get a hold of myself you don't have that kind of time and i was exactly i feel the the crushing presence of my own mortality (laughs) at every moment it's hard to figure out once you get some resolution around your your sense of self to uh you know how do you move forward from that or or, or why would you why now don't that, you just stop? now that i know who i am who the hell am i well there's that but there's also sort of like with the political climate changing like it is i i feel that there's but work before, to be done again well, i feel like there's work to be done well, again. of course there is but there's also sort of like well you know i just started feeling okay right now i can't right now like i can but it's it's going to be relative to a reality that's not okay with me. Uh, and, and you know, yeah, there's a struggle there, but there was, there's part of me that's sort of like, I didn't want to fight this one again. Yeah. My dad, uh, actually, uh, a short, I will tell you a short story because, you know, it's what I do for a living. Um, when I was in high school, I Reagan was elected. And I called my dad in a panic because I was at prep yeah. school and everyone else really loved Reagan. And I was yeah. like, yeah, no, not so much. And I felt all alone. I called my dad and he said, there's a pendulaic swing. It'll be conservative for a while. It'll be, it's fine. Mm. It goes back and forth. And then uh, when when Ray, when Bush the second was elected, yeah. I called my dad and I said, we're back to this. And he said, it's okay. There's a, it's a pendulum. We had eight years. Yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, but it was still all the capitalist <laughs> stuff going on. It wasn't like we had a huge change. It's 
It moves slowly. Don't yeah. worry. It's okay. Uh, relax, breathe. And then uh, in November, because, yeah. uh, you know, I had been ready to celebrate. Sure. Hillary was going to win. I was going to celebrate like AIDS had been cured yeah. and I owned the patent. Yeah. You know, it was like I was. I Unprecedented plans. third term Democratic yeah. uh, leadership. Exactly. And instead, I wound up spending the night disguising my attic door as a bookcase. Uh-huh. So uh, I. um. Called I called your dad. I called my dad the next day and I said, Dad, I need your wisdom and your calm and your your insight into yeah. this. And he said, we're fucked. Oh, good. Uh, and he called me a week later and he said, you know what? I was sort of joking around last week, but uh, I thought I was done with my day's marching, but I just went out and bought new sneakers. Oh, yeah. He's 80 years old. and He's going to be out yeah. uh, as will I Yeah. Um, on different coasts. Right. Uh, and yeah, I feel like there's work to be done. But do you? I I feel as though, and my wife agrees with me on this, which might be why we're such a good pair. I feel as though what is not normal is if you don't uh, indulge in suicidal ideation as you go to sleep. In ter- in terms of what's happening, or in no, general? just in general. No, nah, I don't have that. That doesn't happen to you. Okay, I don't. I don't have suicidal ideation anymore. I oh, you know I, I, I you know there there are times where. I as I get older, that I feel hopeless, or that I feel, um, you know, like I there's this element of me where I'm like I was just starting to f- figure things out and things were leveling off and in a good way, and now like you know I'm scared, so like you know things like this when you have a brain that is you know wired to uh, to be uh, I'm fucked. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you know, I overcame a lot of that in a lot of ways. And then when there's a real reason for us to feel that, then it pollutes everything else. Did I so, did I tell you about when I first got medicated for my depression? No. Did I? Oh, man. I had been depressed my whole life and didn't know it. Yeah. Uh, and I had self-medicated for years with pot and yeah. didn't know that's what I was doing. Yeah. And then uh, I got on uh, Paxil. I'm thinking 10 years ago now, eight years ago, they put me on Paxil and, uh, and I felt the depression lift. And it was like, I, I was the weight on your heart. I was feeling very different about the world. Yeah. And that was odd. And after eight months, the doctor said, uh, so do you want to wean off of it? And I said, oh, okay, sure. Is that what we do now? And he said, yeah. And he said, so cut back by a quarter of a pill. Mm-hmm. for a week and a half and so it just it can get you over the hump and yeah. re- reconfigure things yeah so i cut back by a quarter of a pill and three days later i'm on my way to a meeting uh-huh. and as i'm driving to the meeting i'm deciding i'm figuring out all the things i can be pissed off about when i get there mm. i'm in traffic and i can be pissed off because it took me so goddamn long to get here and there's not the traffic's not that bad it's yeah. and i leave every i get everywhere early it doesn't matter I, 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 and I, if, they, if they make me pay for parking i'm gonna be sad i don't even have a job yet and i'm gonna go to a meet on here and make me pay for parking they better and i get there and there's a parking spot right out front and i pull into the parking spot and i call my shrink and i go okay I cut back by a quarter of a pill for three days, and I can feel all the darkness on the planet crawling up my spine and infesting the dark crevices of my brain. Is yeah. that normal? And he said, and and this was your first depression ever that we were treating for? Yeah. And I said, no. I've been 
depressed my whole life. He said, oh, stay on it. Apparently, you are supremely attuned to this drug. We found the right one for you. Stay on it. Yeah. And I went back on, and I have been virtually fine since. In terms of, of chemical depression. In terms of chemical depression. Reasonable depression you, you Reason, have. Yeah, I still have sadness. I still have anger. I still have rage. And, and uh, I often say that I, I'm medicated by a, a strict Orwellian therapist who mm. likes to keep me sedated against political uh, outrage. But that's <laughs> not true. I still get politically outraged. I know. But- uh, uh, but it doesn't all feel like it's my fault and my responsibility and everyone is against me. Right. It just feels like I got work to do. Right. Well, that's a good, that's a better way to frame it. Isn't it? And, and I would have had no way of doing that without the chemical change. So, well, I'm happy for you. Well, thank you. You look happy. So, <laughs> so now you seem to do uh, some sort of uh, special or... Uh, CD or something like you know, revel like monthly. <laughs> uh, I am I am uh, ridiculously prolific. Yeah, um, you making a living intermittently. Yeah, <laughs> I make an intermittent living. I yeah. when I when I'm not making a big living, my wife supports us. Oh, well, um, married the right person. I, I guess. she's wonderful. She's incredibly supportive of me and what I do mm -hmm. and. One of the things that happened when I quit smoking pot is that I realized I had been using it to make myself stupider. Sure. Well, it, 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 the, the difference between thought and action, the, the, the distance becomes very vast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much easier just to have more chips. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I was writing then. You know, I was writing a lot mm -hmm. and, and performing all the time. But I was slowing myself down and slowing down my thought process and my creative process. And once I was off... Suddenly, I wanted to get all these ideas into the world, and it matters to me more that I get the ideas into the world than it does that I make a fortune. Right. Uh, I, I like making a living. I, I, I'm not driven to make a killing. Right. Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, so, you know, um, and at the same time, there's part of me that really wants the the widespread recognition that would come through, you know... NPR or IFC. Um, there's there's the desire to be more accepted by the people who seem to have money to put into projects that I don't always have to. Put well, you'd be surprised at the, how 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 much that isn't there as much as you might assume. I I I figure that to be the case because what I am learning at every step of this career mm -hmm. is that there is far more illusion in show business than there is mm -hmm. business or show. Well, there's a lot of people taking meetings. Yeah. And there's a lot, you know, things get made, but, it, you know, the the landscape has become, you know, cluttered and uh, fragmented to the point where, you know, you can earn an honest living. You can't make a fortune. That's, yeah. You know, yeah. you can you can figure out, you know, some people make fortunes. I'm, I'm, I don't seem to be destined for that, but, but the, you, you know, I make a good living. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of platforms, a lot of places to put things and the, the money keeps going away. As the audience becomes more fragmented, what are you going to do? That's exactly right. So um, how many CDs have you put out? F I put out five CDs with stand-up records and then one over-length audio digital download with rooftop comedy. Sure. Uh, that one is called Dylan Goes Electric. And those are all audio? Those are all audio. And now last year I shot three new specials in one night. We had a full house, three shows. I catered it. Um, you cooked? 
No, no, I, I had someone else do it, but I did all the performing <laughs> and all the writing, so right. that counts for something. Three shows, hour long? Uh, the first one ran exactly an hour, 61 minutes. Yeah. That's the one that's coming out uh, next month. The second one ran about 48 minutes, and the third one, I think, ran 36. I may be getting that wrong. Maybe so you had these people sit through three? Yeah. But, with breaks? But in between, they and get catering, and I change my clothes, yeah. Huh. Um, and you're going to release all of them as video as a they're visual video, they're all shot yeah multi-camera uh-huh. uh with a jib and a balcony and the full thing okay um because they're theatrical and spoken word storytelling as opposed to what i used to do as you know shotgun stand-up comedy sure uh it took me a little while to find the right home for any of them uh so now next up comedy out of london is putting out the first one dylan brody's driving hollywood yeah and at the same time blue panther productions out of uh, san francisco is putting me together with a director and we're doing it as a fully staged solo show with a set and lighting cue. When's that? That's going to be going on tour in the spring. Uh, and this is in, not the one you recorded. This is it new. is. It's the same material. It's largely the same material mm. in Dylan Prady's Driving Hollywood, but it's uh, reimagined as a as a fully staged production. Huh. Uh, and this is probably the most Spalding Gray I've gotten. Yeah, I work this show. It's uh, it's a little bit dark and funny and revealing and self-loathing. I so enjoy uh, now that I've learned how to do it. Yeah, right. Having a silent audience yeah. waiting for the next the thing yeah, is the, the most beautiful. A respectful thing in the world. audience is the best you can ask for. Oh, it makes me so happy. And money. Yeah, <laughs> just just enough to keep the mortgage paid. That's okay, I'm 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 with you there. Well, it was great talking to you, buddy. Good seeing you. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me on. I am honored and delighted to be in your garage. Again, Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood premieres on the streaming service next up on February 14th. Go to nextupcomedy.com. Dylan Brody, that was good hanging out with Dylan. But I'll tell you, man, when I got an opportunity to talk to Bill Paxton, I was pretty excited. Uh, he's he's an, an intense, engaged, lively dude. It was good to talk to him. Who doesn't love Bill Paxton? Seriously, who among us does not love Bill Paxton? He's uh he's on this new CBS show, Training Day, which airs Thursday nights, but. Uh, uh, you know him from any number of things. Aliens, of course. I got to get him to say that. Well, let's find out. This is me and uh, the amazing Bill Paxton. Pull, pull the mic in a little. Oh, there you go. That's good. It's right in my beezer. Yeah, I know, man. <laughs> It's so funny to talk to you because, like, back in the day when I did a radio show, you know, you got those machines, those 360 machines with sound bites on them. Mm. And I had that one where you're like, it's over, man. Game over, man. It's game over. God, I get requested that line a lot, a lot. Did you say we're fucked, too? I, no, no uh, I said fucking A. It's the it's a great scene where, you know, uh, An alien. we've had the, yeah, the big shot where... We've take we've just been hosed our first battle with the aliens yeah. in the APC and, yeah and uh, they're ta- Michael Bean and uh, is talking to Sigourney about getting off site and nuking it from outer space right 
and Paul Reiser's trying to, you know, yeah. you know, trying to defend it for the corporation. And I say something like, you know, and, so, and uh, Sigourney says something like, "It's, it's, you know, we go, we'll get, out, we'll get into orbit, we'll nuke the site from outer space, and and, and it's the only way to be sure." And I'm like, "Fucking a, man!" <laughs> but it's, it's. I hadn't seen that in a long time, and we had a 30 year reunion uh, for the, which is unbelievable. Really, at Comic Con, everybody for, for just there. Aliens Two or all of them for Aliens Two. Uh huh. Yeah, it kind of stands alone in in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I was a huge fan of Ridley's original Alien. Oh yeah, it's great. But yeah, the second one, you know, kind of built the franchise, didn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Jim was smart. You know, he knew. You know, the first one is kind of like a ride in a, in a spook house. Yeah, you don't know where the thing's going to jump. A out thriller. And then he thought, you can't do that twice. So right. this time, I'm going to have him literally coming out of the woodwork. Just m as many aliens as possible. Yeah. 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 And they did what they do? Four? God, I don't even know. Keep tapping that thing. What's funny about sequels, because you were just telling me in the kitchen that uh, the, the reason that they made Mighty Joe Young was because <laughs> they had such a great success with King Kong. Huge success. Right. And then they realized, oh no. He's dead. We killed the goose. <laughs> We butchered it. We barbecued it. So they thought, well, wait a minute. What if we come up with a, a monkey who's not so big, but but still could yeah. throw some shit around? You know? Yeah. But you've had quite a fucking career. <laughs> had a bizarre career. Dude, you've been in was, some of the best movies. It's got all these zigzag things, up, down, all around. But where'd you grow up? I was born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas. Really? Yeah. Well, I don't know why I say really, like, well, you, like I, you'd be lying the to reason me. I, yeah, well, I might as well be. Uh, the reason I was born there was because of my, my grandfather, who I never knew, from Kansas City. Yeah. He read an article about a flamboyant uh, wheeler dealer, a guy named who was kind of a William Randolph Hearst character forward named Eamon Carter, and he was yeah. sitting in Kansas City yeah. reading the, the Saturday Evening Post in 1935. And had this, he had a he had a hardwood lumber distrib distribution. Thing. Your grandfather. Yeah, he started yeah. this hardwood lumber thing with, yeah. you know. So he was going to put a yard. He wanted to expand and put a yard in Dallas, but he read this article about this guy in Fort Worth. So he went down there and he went. Ah, that's where the and that's why I'm from there. My dad, after he died, my uh, grandfather died in 1950. Bless you. He uh, took on the lumber business. Well, he, he he joined the lumber business, but he had a kind of answer to his brother and, yeah. and his mother. Yeah. And so he moved uh, down to Fort Worth. And wait, so he was kind of in the lumber business? He was. He, this was his. He started work selling flooring, hardwood flooring for his dad when he was 16. So, so, so you'd go My down. My dad's the reason I'm out here. Really? Oh, he's the reason we're talking right now. He is. Oh, yeah. Why? He, he, I think he always wanted to be an actor, but he was the kind of guy who, he was very flamboyant, very colorful. Yeah, uh, big storyteller, raconteur. What kind a, of colorful? A true raconteur. Yeah. And uh, you know, he started selling flooring for his dad when he was sixteen. He was yeah. in, he was in the war. He was stationed on the on the Rockefeller State outside of New York City. He ended up in Chicago after that because there was a yard down there working there. Then he met my mom uh, outside of a, a church, and uh, which he never went to. He said he was a pagan and. Uh, not he religious had, folks. Yeah, and then my brother Bob, my older brother, was uh, born in uh, in uh, Skokie, and then uh -huh. they moved to Fort Worth. 
But he, from an early age, my dad, for I, ever since I can remember, he was taking me to movies and plays. And yeah, we'd come out and he'd want to talk about you know these. He'd, he'd deconstruct me. Say, hey, I thought the music was great in that movie, didn't yeah. you? And I like the music. Right. Well, oh yeah, there's music. So you oh so you learned the how to art kind direction. Of, oh really? Writing and so he, he was a real a fan and he was uh, a but he was sort fan. of a film nerd uh, and a and theater he loved, nerd. He, yeah, and he loved art. He, he said he had a fifth grade teacher, which would have probably been about 1930 for him. Yeah, he was born in 20. Uh, that turned him on to Rubens, Peter Paul Rubens, the Renaissance sure. painter. And yeah. He had a great affinity and a great love of art, uh, but he wasn't an intellectual. He read everything. I've been going through a lot of his stuff. My mom really? passed last June at oh, 90. Oh, sorry. Oh, 90. That's a, yeah, no. She, did all right. she was ready to go. Yeah. So I've been kind of closing down the house. They had a beautiful library of books, and just they just read everything. And they stayed in Fort Worth? Stayed in Fort Worth till about 1980, and then yeah. my dad decided it was just too hot down there. And even though my mom and them had friends, he moved out to Solana Beach, California. How far is that from here? That's right next to Del Mar. It's so they were close. Me to surf, yeah. So yeah. you saw him. Oh, yeah, uh, I saw him a lot. It was great. I, we were we were real pals. Anybody that knew me at, at all knew my dad. We we were oh, a, yeah? a package. Yeah, yeah you yeah. palled around a lot. And he lived to 91. He passed in 2011. I was in Romania doing Hatfield and McCoy's when he passed. That's a great show. That was a great movie, dude. I can't remember if it was a miniseries or a movie. But it was I a miniseries. It. I watched the whole thing. Because that thing had been sort of dealt with before, but you guys kind of ki- killed it. Yeah, kind of. A was East, it you and Eastern, Western, yeah. Yeah, it was fucking great. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. i just come out of big love, and I thought, you know, I'd kind of played a pretty religious guy. And the way Randall McCoy was written in this, that he was almost kind of a, a zealot in some ways. And yeah. I, I called Costner up. They set me up so I could... I'd met him in passing over the years. Yeah, I've kind like of met guys. everybody. Right, sure. I've been around so damn yeah. long. But uh, and he said, "Oh man, it's it's we're gonna it's gonna we're gonna be we're gonna be wearing beards and stuff. It's not gonna be like that show and and uh, like what show? Like uh, like Big, Big Love? Love. Oh. Well, I was you know not, it was it was completely different. But I just felt like wow." You you were, know, I played a pretty religious guy in that, and I loved that show. I did too. We got to talk about that, but I uh, I thought you know maybe this is going to be t- you know you want to mix it up a little bit. Oh, you were you were afraid that you'd be typecast so as a zealot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I I mean he said, oh man, we're going to be wearing beards and we're going to Romania. And I went, what? We're going where? Romania. He goes, yeah, I know. You haven't heard about that. He goes, yeah, we're going to shoot the whole thing in Romania. We're going to use all the old sets from this movie, Cold Mountain, and we're going to be in Bucharest. And it was a great experience, except you know that my pop died while I was on it. But uh, uh, he had he had done his thing. He got out clean. I like to say he was ninety one. Yeah, that's got out clean. And you know he lived a good life. Lived a good life, and it faltered a little bit at the end, but really didn't have a you know a tough exit puts i guess it puts stuff into perspective huh i mean i you know both of my folks are still alive and like uh, but like when they lived blessed. to not, when you when you lived to 90 yeah and i was god i was in my 50s when, right. when they passed so i mean that that's great especially if you've had a good relationship with your parents well that's great i, I don't hear that too often well yeah. <laughs> my dad used to say i wasn't weird i told him i wanted to be an actor at one point yeah and he said you're not weird enough to be an actor you haven't had enough neurotic weird stuff happen to you and i said oh dad <laughs> yeah. i had plenty someday i'll tell you yeah but i it's weird the hatfield mccoy's because it was one of those things it was on uh like the history network right the History Channel it le- kind of legitimized that network overnight because they had such phenomenal ratings. Yeah, because I was flipping around and I, I don't know how I heard of it, but like I started watching. I'm like, holy shit! 
this is great. Yeah. These guys are really doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, you and Cosner were really fucking doing uh, it. It was crazy over there, too. Yeah. You know, you, the Wranglers didn't speak English, and you're, you know, they put us on all these Romanian stallions, and God, we're trying to ride through these hardwood forests. And I, I realized very early on that yeah. with a wide brim hat and a huge beard, yeah. I probably just needed to be in the medium and the close-up shots. So I let I let this guy, and he was a nice guy, but God, he was he'd, he'd gotten hurt doing some medieval times thing over yeah. there, and he got hit with a lance and had gone through his left eye socket and out the top of his head. Oh my God! So he had the gnarliest scar you've ever seen. And he was a stunt guy. He was my 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 guy. So he was the guy in the beard on the horse. Yeah, I paid him. I paid him extra. I tell you, yeah. <laughs> take care of me here, will you? You're not much of a horse guy uh, well kind of yes and no <laughs> i got to go to a horseback riding camp when i was a when i was a kid and i did a lot of rodeo and back in those days i was up in wyoming real rodeo you rode the uh the, the well bucking, i didn't uh, no i didn't do they didn't let you do that but a little uh, they let you, they, yeah a little roping a little uh they yeah. had a little horse race had a quarter mile track and so that, you could, that was fun you know it was like right what i guess maybe it's not quite like riding a bike because every horse is different you know, I tell you, there's nothing more exciting than being in a horse race. Yeah. But the, but you want to be out front because if you're not, you, it's amazing how many dirt clods are hitting you in the face. It's just you can't hardly see it. It's it's like being in a maelstrom of dirt. And uh, it but it's cool nowadays because of insurance and all. They would never let the ki- you know your kids out there riding horses full gallop on a horse track. They just yeah. never like to do it. Well, I mean, unless you've grown up in that kind of life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 That's but true. so you spent your whole childhood. Well, I was a suburban kid yeah, from Fort Worth, from yeah. Texas. Yeah, I could have been from anywhere. I was listening to Jimi Hendrix and riding yeah. motorcycles. He played. The, he came through there. He played Texas. I talked to Billy Gibbons about that from ZZ Top. Ah, I met, but you were you were a kid. You've met who? Billy? I met Billy, and yeah. uh, God, I remember Billy's. You know, I remember ZZ Top when they were kind of a regional band. They, their first hit was a was a regional hit called "Shaking Your Tree." Yeah. Yeah. And they used to play down at Panther Hall in Fort Worth. Oh, really? They used to call Fort Worth Panther City because, I guess, legendary. They had, they were Panthers living there at some point. Did I you go see him? I went to see him. Uh, I remember he played. They opened for Edgar and Johnny Winter. Oh my God! They were amazing. They both know. did their own songs. Oh, and they played together. It's and so weird because they're so different, man. Oh, like you know, Johnny straight up blues, hard oh. rock, and Edgar's like you know this keyboard, almost prog rock shit. Oh, uh, they were great. Yeah, they were well, great. they're Texan too. They were Texan. They grew up playing on a local um, Dallas TV show where they're playing country. So it was ZZ music. Top and the uh, and the Winter Brothers. Yeah, and Blood Rock opened too. I don't know who Blood Rock. They is. had one hit. It was called DOA. Uh-huh. We were flying low and hit something in the air, and <laughs> I remember that was them. Was, yeah, yeah. There were a lot of car accidents when growing up in, in Texas, even though you have complete wide open spaces sure there were the most horrendous you know fatalistic car accidents growing up i remember going to funerals of, of friends and stuff just because it's like everybody had those big fast cars and when, old, when you have you that know, when you have the open highway you just want to drive fast gtx yeah you know. so you're just growing up in texas growing up in one texas older brother got an older brother and i got a younger sister younger brother it's for you yeah everybody's all right yeah, everybody's hanging in there. Yeah, you know. And when you, you when did the interest in acting come? Were you like athletic guy? Did you? I wasn't really. You know, 
one thing I like about films and, and, and television is I, I dig being a part of a, of a concerted group that are trying to make something. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. You know, we're all so alienated and so isolated in modern society in so many ways, even though we have all these, all this technology sure. to supposedly connect us, yeah. we're, we're as isolated as we've ever been. Oh no, it's hard. You know, I kind of dreamed of the Renaissance where you, you know, you're, you're born and you become an apprentice in a guild and you know, yeah. it, it takes all these different disciplines to build a cathedral. And sure. that's kind of what it takes to make a film. It's, that's one, true. it's one of the last of the great guild crafts. Yeah. It's, there's have, guilds and there's unions now, but yeah, that's but, true. But you have the different departments that yeah. have to come together and, concert and it, it's fun uh, it's i really so i wasn't an athlete i never but i always envied that team thing you know yeah. the team and this the camaraderie because you know when i was you know i went to catholic school and then uh, then my dad got a wild hair up his ass when we were when i was uh, in seventh grade next thing i knew we'd moved out to the country from forest so i went from being basically a suburban kid from anywhere usa yeah to this god i was living in the last picture show this this baptist community about Re how old were you 30 miles i was i was 13 but it was kind of wild because those country girls were a lot wilder than the suburban girls yeah but, and you were like new meat fresh meat but i wasn't a football player and it was all about playing football and stuff but i and so i, I felt a little isolated also when i was that age i i had a, i got a weird ailment woke up one night i've been to a hockey game and uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and had a lot of pain in my left wrist. And I, I went downstairs and knocked on my dad and mo my mom and dad's door. Yeah. And, I, and I said, Dad. And he said, what is it, son? He said, oh, I'm in a lot of pain. What's something wrong with this? He goes, oh, you probably slept on it. Yeah. And then I, and he said, you'll be okay. Just go back to bed. By morning, it was worse. And my dad, it was a Sunday morning. My dad realized he, he took me to a friend of his who was a ortho guy, bone guy. And he yeah. kind of said it, kind of unwrapped it couldn't really figure out what it was and so the next day i had some tests done by the pediatrician and then yeah. by tuesday night i was in the cook's children's hospital and and they did still couldn't figure out finally they thought i had something called osteomyelitis or it could be this thing rheumatic fever yeah rheumatic rheumatic fever and that's what it was really so i spent a good part of the seventh grade and this was before we moved to the country in 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 bed what what now? What is rheumatic fever? What does it affect? Rheumatic fever comes from a, a streptococcus infection oh. from a strep throat that's yeah. not, that kind of goes untreated. I'd had kind of a bad sore throat at Christmas time. Uh -huh. Yeah, don't don't get sick during the holidays or during the weekend if you're going to help it. A lot of guys buy the ranch because of the the, the, holidays? the illness hits at the wrong time. But it, uh, truly, truly, really? yeah, yeah. So I uh, I had this. Uh, uh, so I had this thing, and and what it does is it's supposedly the it's an infection, and somehow it it kind of got into my wrist, but it usually damages your heart valves. Did it? Well, yeah, yeah, a little yeah, bit, yeah, yeah. Rheumatic fever yeah. sounds a little. But it kind of isolated me at a, at a, at an interesting age. Yeah, it suddenly made me because uh, I you know I grew up in Texas, and and that sounds like you know something out in the country but like again it was suburban we lived near a golf course i spent all my time on the golf course hunting golf balls yeah and, yeah you know listening to the beach boys and the beatles and the rolling stones and then you know getting to go to camp in the summer and all that stuff and you know i was a real outgoing kid i, I wasn't a jock but I, yeah but i did a lot of stuff but suddenly i was in this kind of voyeuristic kind of world where i had a tv but there wasn't much tv in those right. days and i read a lot 
And I just kind of looked out the window, you know, and at the golf course. And that was it? About six months, yeah. And just yeah. sitting in bed? Yeah. Thinking about things? Yeah. No revelations? Uh, you know. So your dad was Catholic, but you're not a religious No, my dad guy. wasn't Catholic. My oh. mother was Catholic. My dad was no religion. Right. He called, yeah, himself, he a called pagan. himself a pagan. But uh, in order to marry my mother, he met her. He met my mom in Chicago. It's kind of a good story. Uh he, uh, you know, he was he was sharing. He had an apartment. He had a great bachelor pad on uh, Lakeshore Drive, LSD, sure. fourteen hundred yeah. LSD, yeah. and and he and he had one of his buddies, this guy named Charlie Dan. He was a young pilot for uh, United, and they were out one night. And uh, my dad, there was some place I think it was called Dante's. It's kind of a famous old kind of bar restaurant oh, yeah, yeah. In, uh, near the Loop. And he saw this gal with these other gals, and he and he had this buddy Andy Muldoon. He said, "Who who is that?" And he said, "That's uh, Mary Lou Gray." He said, "Oh God, you got to introduce me to her." And he says, "Well, come on over." He goes, "No, no, 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 not here, not here." Yeah. So he said, and then so he called him the next day. He said, "Hey, you know, she goes to my church, and uh, and she'll be there Sunday. Why don't you go to church with me?" I think it's the only time my dad ever went into a church oh, beside yeah. when he married her. Right. <laughs> Because uh, yeah. my dad was kind of guy goes, why do you got to go to a church? Can't you look at this beautiful tree? Yeah, you know why don't you just worship <laughs> under the tree in the nude and just give praise to to, to whatever it is? Right. Yeah, he's one of those guys. While we were at church, he'd be naked on a chaise lounge in the backyard reading the latest Ian Fleming paperback. You is know? that true? Yeah, oh, that's very true. Very true. So uh, so God, he he went to the church and he met my mom. He he was with her for two weeks, and this is kind of weird. I don't think this is weird, but again, I told you, I've been going through a lot of yeah. my folks' stuff. I found a picture I'd never seen, and I made a card of it to sign a send out in my mom's memoriam. Oh, that's look my at that. mom and dad. That's in Chicago. That's 1950. Oh, wow. And uh, she's 25. My dad's 30 there. Oh, look he at that. He dated her for two weeks and proposed marriage to her. Oh, that's beautiful. And uh, so in order, getting back to the Catholic thing, in order to get married in the Catholic Church, I don't know if it's still that way now, but if you, if it was, a, you know, someone who wasn't a Catholic, a non-Catholic, you had to get whoever, you had to get married. To get married in the church, you had to sign a piece of paper that said any children born of this marriage will be raised in the Catholic Church. And my dad said he would have signed anything. He said, even your mother worshipped <laughs> pagan idolatry. I didn't care. Yeah. So, so he uh, signed. He signed, and we were raised Catholic. And I, 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 you know, I went to Catholic school from the time I was in kindergarten till I was at, through the seventh grade. And you'd have a lay teacher one year, and then you'd have a, a, a nun, a sister. Right. And it was kind of a bizarre experience. I also was an altar boy. Uh, me and my brother would do the Friday night Vesper service. I love that. But, but you, it's interesting that you're growing up in a household where your dad's got is a character, a and your character. mother's a Catholic who's like who's crossed a bear. Was oh, probably John, a, you know, right. not in front of the children. He was right. all, that all, all that all the time. All the time. You know, my dad was the kind of guy. We'd be getting into the car. He had a lot of stock kind of lines and yeah, stuff. Yeah. One of his stock lines was whatever he was putting the keys in the ignition of the car. He'd say, "Oh hell, I couldn't find this thing if it had hair around it." <laughs> You know, I mean, and, and, you know, oh, John, the children. You know, and he go, and he, you know, we were cutting up in the back seat. So he goes, "Come on, be." He goes, "Pipe down, or I'll kick a lung out of you." These were these were terms of of, of endearment, right? But your mom was just like, "Here we go." Uh, yeah, well, she it was kind of a faux thing she did. That faux shockness, mm -hmm. you know, because well, she had to do she, something. She had her wild side too. Yeah, yeah. And they, they loved to throw parties. God, they just threw parties like those classic fifties and sixties parties. But sometimes, all of a sudden, we'd be taken to a motel for the night and. 
We, I, who? I was raised by a woman named Clemence Jones. Mm -hmm. I couldn't say Clemence as a kid, so I called her Monsey. I knew yeah. Monsey her whole life. Yeah. And Monsey said, Bill, I knew you before you knew yourself. <laughs> and if I was cutting up, she'd say something like, if you're going to be a clown, be a first-class clown and get paid for it. And I want to say thank you, Monsey. <laughs> I took that advice to heart. You became but a first-class clown. Our parents would send us to the motel for that. But then I remember other nights when we were at the house, especially this house on Indian Creek Drive that was near the golf course. That was my parents' dream house. My dad built it with all these great hardwoods, the flooring. Yeah, connections for the woods. And my dad was into art, so it was yeah. great art on the walls. And and uh, and they and we had an upstairs section, and they could kind of close off the other the side of the house. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the parties would just be going on. And, and I remember my one, of my, my one of the best memories, you know, it's that sense memory, that smell yeah. that really takes you back to right. a place. But I remember my mother coming up in that, that rustle of those, those crinoline dresses, yeah. long skirts and just that rustle, and coming to kind of kiss me goodnight while the party's going on. And there was this mixture of, of, of gin, perfume, and cigarettes. Oh. And it was just an ambrosial smell. <laughs> I, I, you know, a wonderful, wonderful smell. Yeah, yeah. That to this day... That's my mother. Wow. You know, you, it's hard mother. to find that smell out it in the really wild is. these days. It really is. You got to go to Europe to catch it. Sure, you know, yeah. Gin's not hit. that popular. No one smokes anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to go to Europe to get that Oh, hit. that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, so was your mother, how far back? You're a little older than me. She was a Catholic. I mean, I was yeah. reading up on you a little bit. Was she a big Kennedy person? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, but uh, but really it was my older brother Bob, because see, I was 11 and he was 8 when Kennedy came through Fort Worth on that fateful trip, and uh, we could see down from, you know, where we could see past the golf course and we could see down to Carswell Air Force Base. And my brother had gotten a telescope. Yeah. And we could we we looked down and we could we saw Air Force One with the presidential seal on it. And my dad came up. And it was it was about we were just about to go to bed. Yeah. And it was later in the night, and we had gotten to kind of stay up. And my dad said, "Get, get, get let, you know, you guys want to? We'll, we'll go watch the motorcade drive by." So we he, so I literally had my pajamas on. I yeah. put a robe on. I had my slippers on. My brother and I we got my dad's Jetstar yeah. Oldsmobile. We drove down to Roaring Springs Road and parked, and there the whole motorcade went by. And it was probably, it was late. It was like 11 o'clock at night. It was really late for yeah, me yeah. at eight years old. Right after they landed kind of thing? So before right after the they day. Landed, they'd had a long day. Yeah. I, I know a lot about this story. Uh, it, it, I became obsessed with it like many, many Americans, many, well, many people of the world. With and, the JFK assassination? Uh, yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, I developed a huge project for Tom Hanks' company a few years ago about it. But... Uh, the next morning, my brother got my dad up and said, uh, knocked on the door and said, you, pr uh, you know, you promised you'd take us to see the president. Yeah. And, he, and my dad looked out the window and it was kind of a rainy morning. And, uh, and then my dad said, and he thought, you know, I liked Kennedy, but I thought the idea of taking these kids into a crowd in the rain was going to be a complete pain in the ass. Right. And then my brother used the two words that kills, kills it, kills, you know, every deal with a yeah. parent. You promised. Uh-huh. So he said, get your brother dressed. And <laughs> 10 minutes later, we're driving down to... Uh, Dallas? Uh, no, downtown Fort Worth. They spent their last night in Fort Worth, the Hotel Texas. Yeah. And uh, a crowd of about 4,000 people gathered in the parking lot in front of the Hotel Texas. And there was a... I found out later, it was just a flatbed truck they'd put bunting on. They put the uh, le lectern with the presidential seal. And we were probably there for about 
20, 30 minutes, and here comes the president. Here comes you know, there's there's Johnson, there's Connolly, yeah. there's Yarborough. This this is and this is four hours before it's all the you know it's all going to go down. And Kennedy was really up that morning, and it was something about seeing him in color. Yeah, you know, and he's in a blue suit, and his hair was red, and 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 Chad, he looked great. And uh, he was in, he was very jocular. He kind of kidded the crowd. He said, "I'm sorry, Jackie's not down here to greet you, peep, good people." She yeah. takes a little longer to get ready in the morning. Of course, she looks a hell of a lot better. And, right? Yeah, you know, there's like an electricity in the crowd. Sure. And my dad was taking turns putting me and my brother up on his shoulders. And even though I wasn't too far, we weren't too far away. Yeah. There was a little kind of an orchestra pit where they'd put the you know police block. You know, those uh-huh. saw horses around. For the Secret Service, the police, and the uh, you know the the new the media the, the newsreels guys, and we were not far behind the crowd, and there were two there were two black guys standing next to to my dad and me and my brother in the crowd, and they saw my dad's dilemma. He was kind of trying to put my brother up, yeah. my Bob and me, and he said, "We'll take those boys." So for most of the speech, I was on a stranger's shoulders. Yeah. It was kind of a great moment. You yeah, know? And I just yeah. remembered it. And they found me in a newsreel. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, a few years ago. It's kind of a crazy picture. And you because I'm up up above the crowd, and you know I got this. You know, my dad had us just get. You know, we had crew cuts and stuff uh-huh, back uh-huh. in those days. It was easy. Didn't get as much head lice at school if you had the crew cut. You right. Know, one of those deals. So you went home after that, and then you. And I went then... back to school, but we got to go to the Toddle House, which was the highlight of, of our of our existence at the time. It was one of these great waffle pancake houses. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a diner, Rockefeller's yeah. Diner. I guess in New York they used to have the ones called Shrafts. Yeah, you know, sure. Egg like that. Yeah. And. Uh, we got to eat there, and so we got to go to school late. And I remember coming out, coming, going to recess, and I was really excited. I'd seen the president, and it, it was, you know, Kennedy was was the man. Yeah, I was like seeing the biggest movie star in the world. Yeah, and we came in off the recess playground, and the radio was on, and we were in those one of those those single single story with the central uh, hallway center block schoolhouses yeah, yeah. with the fluorescent lights. Yep. And we went in, I was in the third grade, Sister Annette, I remember, and, and, and all the lights were off. We were told to put our heads down on the desk, and the radio was on, and it was announced that, he, that Kennedy had succumbed to this assassin's bullet. And, uh, and the nuns were all crying, and it was just unbelievable. It just, and I couldn't believe it. I was eight and a half, and I was just like, I just saw him, that's not right, that can't be, and all this stuff. And I remember that night, my brother was so distraught, my 11-year-old brother. He's my oldest brother and, and always was a sensitive guy. Yeah. And I remember he came and, 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 and got in my bed with me that night. We had our own rooms. Yeah. We had, had, our, we had shared rooms up to that point, but we were living in this dream house of my parents. And I, and it really, it, and I, and I, I kind of experienced the grief of it through, through him. It was, he was leveled, brother. huh? Yeah. Just shattered. I don't think he ever got over it. It's one of those things, you know. You know. That was if if Kennedy was your was your man, who he was to a whole generation of you know the youth looked up to him. Well, yeah, and also it was nothing had ever happened like that in modern America. No, you know, out in the open. Oh my out, god! I mean, the implications yeah. of it, like you said, like not unlike many other people, became obsessed with 
you know, the, the, oh, the, the spectacle and the tragedy yeah. of it. It's like something out of a Greek tragedy. You couldn't no, quite no doubt. Believe it. And then also the conspiracy growing around it. So, well, yeah, that's kind of what my project was about. We were going to do a ten-hour miniseries for HBO because uh, I went to Tom Hanks, who I knew from Apollo thirteen. And Are we, you guys friends? Yeah, we're friends. We don't we don't see much of each other. I gave him a People's Choice Award last yeah, yeah. week. You know? Oh, you did? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, uh, and we did. I did a film with him recently called The Circle, but. Uh, yeah, but you guys are great. Apollo thirteen is great. Yeah, it was a great experience. I talked to Ron. You know, oh, here. he should have won all the marbles. On I'll that tell you, one. man. That's like I watched it again recently. It's really the best of it holds, the genre. It's it like, holds it, up. Oh, totally, totally. I'm so proud to have been a part of that movie. It I was can't great. Tell you. And Tom was great too. A great, a great Jim Lovell and a great leader of the cast. It's and, solid. Yeah, it's like both of you guys are just such grounded, natural actors. Like, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, a fascinating thing that you have this ver- versatility, you know. That- it's really a survival skill, Mark. You know, <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't any, you know. Mm-hmm. You're trying to, you're just trying to stay employed and, and, and try to work on cool things. And- well, what was, the, what was the show you pitched, the miniseries? What were you guys? It was going to basically be, uh, it was going to, you know, it seemed to me that all over the years, the conspiracists have all had their say and. You know, if you really, and there was a book that came out that I, I got to see the galleys of, and it was um, Vincent Bugliosi. Sure. Who wrote Halter Skelter. Yeah. He wrote a book called. He was a DA here, wasn't he? He was a, yeah. a DA here. And yeah. really, it's kind of amazing that he was able to put M- Manson behind bars for life when Manson really wasn't at the murder scene. Right. It's kind of a unique situation, that yeah. case. It's an unbelievable story. So he wrote a book on Kennedy? Called Reclaiming History. And uh-huh. this thing could, it's too bad Kennedy didn't have this book. To protect his, his head because <laughs> it would have stopped him. Any, any I just round. watched Jackie. Yeah, uh, I haven't been able wow. to bring myself to watch that because I know that story so well. Yeah, it's a, I it, like the it's really a kind of interesting poetic meditation on on grief and and the isolation of grief and also the weird horrible coldness of politics sometimes mm. tragedy. Too. Well, then her trying to kind of uh, try to solidify that, that his legacy and, and of Camelot and all of that. A bit of that, but it, also I thought I you got know, a lot to... of Kennedy stories that nobody's ever heard because From of who? my research. Oh yeah, yeah. I, uh, but basically, I just I'll tell I'll tell I'll give you a couple anecdotes. But uh, we were going to do a ten hours, and it was going to be kind of like concentric circles on a bullseye. Uh-huh. One hour is going to follow the you know work, what Kennedy was doing that weekend, and each one we're going to do one on Ruby, one on Oswald. And and finally, and by kind of deconstructing it and laying it all out, it really isn't such a mystical thing that happened. When you stand in the book depository yeah. in the window next to the one where Oswald fired from, you think, God, I could have hit him with a BB gun. You know, oh, yeah. it's not some kind of like, oh, you know, it was a real magical shot or right. magic bullet. And the one bullet that just didn't, it didn't fall apart like bullets do. It right. was still kind of looked, it looked pristine, but if you look at the end of it, you can tell it has been fired. And that was the one that supposedly was thrown on the gurney. Right. It just went through two men, and by the time it got through Connolly, it just kind of... Plopped out? Yeah, it just kind of plopped out. But um, I got to know a guy named Milton Evans. Yeah. He was a William Morris agent, and then he, and then he, but he, but at the time of the Kennedy thing, he was running Peter Lawford's company. He helped produce the Rat Pack movies, and, and he was a Kennedy. And, and well, yeah, Lawford, well, Lawford married. was married to Eunice Kennedy. Yeah. I think it was Eunice Kennedy, and uh, and he told me uh, uh, some crazy stories. He told me about going to the White House, yeah, 
during the, the, the whole height of the, the Kennedy administration with Peter Lawford. And, and yeah, Kennedy really liked to listen to the Camelot soundtrack. You know, oh, Richard yeah. Harris sure. singing Camelot. And uh-huh. He had it on the thing. And, and God, and, and uh, he said he one, one day, I don't know, this is kind of a crazy story. He said he went down to take a swim and uh, there were two Secret Service guys standing by the pool. And I don't even know where that pool is. I don't uh-huh. know where it is on, in the White House. And, uh, and, and, they, and he said, oh, maybe it's a bad time. He said, oh, no, it's okay, Mr. Evans. And he kind of thought, God, they know my name. They probably right. got a dossier. You know, go on in. And he went into the, into the pool, and there was Kennedy yeah. in the pool with uh, these two gals. They were all naked. And, and he said, and he called Milt, Milty Baby. He goes, Milty Baby, come on, join us. <laughs> yeah. And Milton was kind of a teetotaler and, yeah. and had been married for many years. Yeah. And, and he just said, gee, I'll, I'll, see, I'll see you at dinner, Mr. President, and kind of laughed. <laughs> and, uh, you so know, there's, it's, it's there's kinda, that, that side of Kennedy. Yeah. and then But then, uh, but then yeah, he, he remembered, you know, seeing him... Uh, he remembered going to the White House with Lawford and and uh, and and Eunice uh, on the day of the assassination, and you know the body was held up in in Dallas, and then yeah. they were able to get it out of there. Then they got to Andrews Air Force Base, where the body was immediately taken to Bethesda Naval, where they did the 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 famous autopsy. Yeah, and the body didn't actually get back to the White House till early pre-dawn sun uh, Saturday morning, and. Uh, that's an amazing story. That drive from that hospital with Jackie in the car, and uh, but but um, Milt got there in the early evening with the Lawfords, and there was a famous. Um, well, they made this movie called The Butler or something. I'm I'm trying to think of his name. His name was uh, Eugene something, and he was Kennedy's valet. Yeah, and uh, he had been with with Kennedy that morning. And he's uh, he was running around the White House trying to accommodate all the house guests, the Kennedy family, yeah. and, and Peter Lawford and Milt and all these people. And and Milt said to him, he said, Eugene, could I? I'd like to have something of, of the president's. And he said, Oh, I get you. I mean, he brought him back a Cartier watch. And Milt said, I I I, I can't take that. He said, could, could, Can I have a couple of his neckties? Milt hand. I I held these neckties. Kind of amazing. But he told me this story that's never really been documented about the Kennedys having a wake yeah. in the dining room of the White House. The on, family. On, the family on yeah. the Saturday night that Milt was uh, present at. Yeah. And there there they are. Uh, and it was almost like he said, it was almost like a cocktail party was going on. An Irish wake. An Irish wig. Everybody was getting completely hammered. Yeah. Except Rose Kennedy, who sat there very stoic. Yeah. The mother with a drink in her hand. But she said at one point, somebody took off uh, Milt's uh, uh, took off Ethel's Kennedy's wig and put it on Milt. Milt was balding guy, yeah. you know, and 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 everybody said, "Look at Milt!" And everybody started laughing. And Milt just said it was the most surreal thing he had ever witnessed. There's another guy named Siegenthal. He was a Secret Service guy who yeah. kind of substantiated the story. And um, he said it was as if it was as if Jack and Jackie had retired early from the party. Oh my Dude, god! The weirdest damn thing. That sounds pr- pretty weird. And, now, was uh, that part of your, your show? Were you going to? We put had all we had a lot of that stuff in there. Now, why does never, it, why doesn't a show like that go? What did Tom? Well, think? you know, Tom, Tom was all what Tom was all in. Uh huh. But uh, you know, 2008 happened. You know, we started working on this in about 2006, and 2008 happened, and we were trying to get it ready for the 50th anniversary. 2011 would mark the 50th anniversary of of the great inaugural speech. Mm-hmm. 
you know, when when inaugural speeches were really something right. to to be inspired by. And uh, and then uh, and then then it was going to be uh, 2013 was going to be the 50th. Yeah. These are that's a significant anniversary of yeah. a historical event. We thought let's have something ready to go. And Tom's company had built a reputation doing these long form yeah. dramatizations of American history, yeah. Earth to the Moon, boy. But the budget it was at a time after 2008 where everybody pulled back and and, uh, and I think HBO was kind of getting out of the miniseries business. Little did they know that it was a, they had started something that was about to grow yeah. with Netflix right. and all these 10-hour series. Yeah, and it's too bad we didn't get to do it. Yeah, we didn't get to do it. Well, when did you come to Los Angeles? When did you do, like? When did you actually start acting? I came to Los Angeles when I was 18 years old. Yeah. Uh, what I, year was that? That was nine. That was the January of 1974. And uh, I, I. Oh my I, God! I, that's like the heyday. I went to my dad and I said, "Crazy town. Who do you know in Hollywood?" And he said, "Jesus, I should have taken you to more business meetings." <laughs> but he had taken me to movies and plays and you know art, and so I was you know I gravitated. And I, he, my dad wanted to be an actor, and what's funny is he became an actor uh-huh. after he retired. Yeah, he was in six movies. Sam Raimi put him in six of his films. Uh, really? Uh, yeah. Actually, what? more than that, Walter Hill put him in Last Man Standing. He's the old Undertaker in that. And Bruce Willis keeps giving him business because he keeps killing people. And uh, and he had a great kind of renaissance. I think it kind of kept him alive to ninety one because he how, had something to do. How, how did he? You get know, those... Most people just die off because they get retired. They got nothing to do. It's so he like, did this like because they all knew him from you. Yeah, kind of. But yeah. he kind of had to get in there and, and take classes and stuff. So, he did. Yeah. Oh yeah. What I, age? At seventy. And all these young kids, they wanted to do scenes with him where they needed a patriarchal figure <laughs> or something. So he's at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Uh-huh. That's I hilarious. Said, I, I, he calls me up one day. He says, you know, I'm getting out of the lumber business. I've been in lumber business 50 years. And shit, I, I can't sit around and play golf or, you know, you know, you know, watch the hair grow out of my nose. So he goes, um, why don't I uh, think about getting into your game? I go, getting into my game? What the hell are you talking about? He goes, yeah, I'm thinking about doing that acting yeah, yeah. thing. And I'm like, Dad, God, you're going into the golden years. You don't do this to yourself. It's a tough life. What had you done I don't care if you're successful point. or not. It's you, still a tough you life. You made some movies, though. You were a guy, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is yeah. This is like this is about 25 years ago. I, I had a pretty good career going at that time. <laughs> uh, I don't know what happened since then. But, oh, uh, come on. Yeah, oh, come on. Yeah. And so... Uh, He's t- I said, you gotta, if you're going to really do this, you got to take classes. He signed up at the Beverly Hills Playhouse and took classes. But I came out here. He had a friend. He knew two guys in Hollywood. He knew Hal Wallace. He played golf with him. Yeah. Hal Wallace, he writes Hal Wallace. Hal Wallace writes back. says, I can't even get my own son a job. He's not in the unions. Unions run everything. So thanks. But no thanks. He writes a guy named Milan Herzog, who made these educational films for Encyclopedia Britannica. This is to help get you in. Just to get me in. The guy, and the guy writes back and says, tell your son to go back to school. We get too many young people out here. They think they've got something to say, but they need to go to school. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, he, and then my dad wrote him a second time. Said, he got, has he got anything for him? He's, he's got to come out there. Yeah. God, help me out, will you? Yeah. And uh, so he gave me two weeks' work as a PA on a thing called Gateways to the Humanities. I met a young guy, a guy there, another director who introduced me to an art director who was getting ready to, um, to art direct his first Roger Corman movie, uh-huh. which was called Big Bad Mama, uh-huh. Angie Dickinson and William Shatner. And, and so I worked on that, and that's where I really kind of got my cherry popped in, in many ways. I was driving a 20-foot van full of set dressing all over Los Angeles, and it was it was kind of blew my mind. Were you in the movie? No, 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 uh-uh. no, I wasn't in the movie. But you're working for Corman for a minute. Working for Corman on a few films, yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So when what was the first movie then? 
Was first, it a Corman movie? Uh, yeah, the first thing I was working on the art department on a film. Uh, it was a thing called Crazy Mama, directed by Jonathan Demme. And I heard over the walkies, and everybody's got a walkie-talkie. I heard over the walkies, said, hey, uh, so-and-so, some guy, some day players, the deputy part didn't show up. And, they said, and I heard there was kind of a pause. I heard Jonathan Demme on the, on the, on the, on the walkie-talkie say, hey, get that kid off the art department truck, cut his hair, take him to wardrobe, and bring him to the set. I had really long hair. My hair was like down to here. You yeah, know, we yeah. Were all hippies back then. Yeah. And uh, so I, and they said, so they cut my hair. They put me in this thing, and I had one line, you know, and I had this thing, and but I was too stupid to. to I could have probably joined the Screen Actors Guild, and I, I didn't. Then after that, I decided I really wanted to try and, and I wanted to go to film school. Yeah. I, that was my my heart was set on going to film school. Yeah. I really, my heroes were guys. My dad had turned me on to, to all kinds of, I mean, he showed me foreign films. He got me into like Chaplin and Keaton. Keaton particularly spoke to me. I've I, I just been a huge devotee of Keaton ever yeah, since yeah. I first laid eyes on, great. on him. And, uh, and so, but I, I was into this idea. And then, and then I, you know, we came, I came up with guys like, you know, going to see movies, but guys like Clint Eastwood and Warren Beatty. Sure. He made Bonnie and Clyde and. Uh, Robert Redford was making his own movies. Paul Newman. When you got here, that Steve was happening, McQueen. right? These guys, well, it, it had been happening. Right. Been happening. So you came out the, in 74. The, yeah, but it had been happening from the, the late, late 60s. 60s. Yeah. Right. And these guys, all these big stars had kind of you know, empowered themselves by starting their own companies, starting to make films, the stories they wanted to tell. And I thought, you know, it's hard trying to fit into somebody else's thing. You know, you kind of know what you probably are, are good at right or the stories you you feel passionate about or you want to tell and but you know you have to go through this this nightmare audition process trying to be other you know it, it build a career and stuff but i thought that's what i wanted to be and it wasn't an ego thing it was more i thought you know i'd like to tell these are the stories i tell I, I, bonnie and clyde was one of my is one of my all-time favorite films. great movie yeah and that was a movie nobody wanted to make but but warren Beatty was able to get so you wanted made. to be one of those people you wanted to be an auteur a guy that you know produces his own movies and yeah. got his own shit done yeah and that if was i have to plan. be in i'm fine that's yeah. okay but if i don't that's okay too so that was the I model to, and i wanted to be a part of this business yeah so, and that was the model that was it did you go to film school I couldn't get in. I tried to go to. I had been. I'd worked out here for two years behind the scenes. I was making short films with you know different disparate groups of people. I had a great buddy named Tom Huckabee. I made a lot of films with another guy named Rocky Shank. I made a lot of films with. I go to. I I, I try to go to SC uh, and UCLA. I have these crappy SAT scores that you know, you know that are haunting me from some test I had to take at eight o'clock in the morning on right. a Saturday sure. when in high school yeah, I was yeah. completely hung over. Yeah. And there and, and it's like guys, I, I I've studied, I've worked in film and I want to come and, and, and learn from you. Couldn't get into those. And found out about a program in uh, new through NYU where you could study at a professional acting school and take and take academic credits at, at Washington Square. And of the four disciplines there was a circle in the square famous re yeah. you know, repertory yeah. company there was experimental wing theater yeah uh, there was yeah there was slee strasberg which the method thing seemed a little too much psychoanalysis and oh yeah yeah, yeah a little too neurotic for me uh -huh. but the one discipline that that stood out to all those was stella adler did you go to new york I, so I got into this program. Yeah. I went to NYU at 21, and I uh, lived in the village. And uh, I, 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 you couldn't be in a play till your junior year, and that sounded like bullshit to me. Right, so right. I ended up producing two plays my 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 freshman year on the side, and uh, I got a scholarship my second year. But after two years of that, I thought, 
I didn't see what I would do with a degree. Right. And I felt like I, I as much as I loved theater and I loved, you know, being in New York, I, I kind of longed to get back into the well, movie game. Well, what did game. you, what did you learn, you know, from her, you know, that, that enabled you to think like, all right, I, I can, you know, I've done a little acting. Now I've got the tools I need. I didn't feel that way. I was not a star, <laughs> a star pupil. You know, I was listening to your podcast with uh, Jason Siegel recently. Yeah. It was a great, a great interview, and, and, he, and you guys seemed like a great soul. You guys got on well, but he talked about putting on this production, his own production at 16 of the Zoo Story. Yeah, right. Well, I tried to do a scene from the Zoo Story in front of Stella. I didn't even get a line out. She, I was so eviscerated, I didn't get out of bed for like three days. Before you even got a line out. I mean, she came in at me and she said, how did you even get in this class? And she said, oh, darling, really? you're not ready for realism. And she was a tough taskmaster. And, and we were students at NYU, but we were thrown into the to these professional classes. Yeah. I remember seeing Harvey Keitel at this class and Jeff Goldblum and and working actors so and they and and there was no fucking around and it was so fucking serious and and god i just it just it crushed me it really crushed me was that me. your last day uh no i i got through <laughs> i got through 2 years of it but that wasn't why i dropped out of nyu i just felt i could felt like i got the meat and potatoes <laughs> You know, you know, Stella Adler would say, you're either going to learn it here or you're going to learn it out there and it's going to take you 25 years. Right. But so you went was, that route? Was, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I took the 50, I took the 50 year plan. Yeah. Actually, I'm still on it. I haven't quite paid off my student loan oh, yet. Oh, come on. No, seriously. It, it's a game you, you're trying to, you, you know, you just keep trying to do better and no of course but like i think that you must have learned something there i did i did i got a i got a foundation there but i remember between uh i remember my between my freshman sophomore year i needed to make some money i had found a loft and down in in tribeca yeah nobody lived down there now it's all dormant and 100 million dollar buildings but i found a a raw space it was 350 bucks i was going to share it with these other two gals who were students at nyu and uh we were going to kind of do plays and stuff down there and use it as a rehearsal space but i needed to make about i needed to make about 10 grand fast and uh, my dad i called my dad i said where can i make some money quick he said well his, his hardwood lumber business had branched into selling surveying instruments and there was a big mineral boom up in uh near casper wyoming he said go up there you can probably make some money so I fly out to Casper, Wyoming. I get a paper, and I I, I interviewed by the the Sweetwater Drilling yeah. r- Drilling Company. We ended up calling it Sweatwater. Yeah. And uh, I got a job working on a on drilling portable uranium uh, drilling rigs. Yeah. And uh, we do these test holes, and they come up and drop these Geiger counter things down to see if there was plutonium down there. I mean, or uranium. Yeah. And uh, and I and it was a crazy job. You lived in these trailers out out in this 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 thing called the Red Desert. And we had our own cook, and there was about twelve of us. And it's kind of preparing you for being on set. It was something else. Yeah, it was. It was something else. And uh, and God, the food was great. But we worked our asses off on that thing. And um, how long were you out there? I was out there for about about twelve weeks. And I and I on the in the weekend they'd drop us off in town, and I'd stay in this old rundown hotel in downtown Casper. This is the the summer Star Wars comes yeah. out. So uh, I'm kind of bored now. I, I brought this book with me that I'd bought in New York yeah. at the theater bookshop. Yeah. It was a book, a, a biography of Buster Keaton. Uh-huh. And it was called Keaton by Rudy Blesch. Yeah. It's a 
great, great biography. Yeah. And I started reading this thing out there on the prairie, and I was just mesmerized by Keaton and his story and how he'd started out in the medicine shows with his dad and yeah. how Harry Houdini saw him fall down a flight of stairs when he was two and said, that's some buster your son just took. And, and they started calling him Buster <laughs> Keaton. Yeah. And, uh, and, I just, and so that weekend, I was so bored, I went to the public library and, 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 said, and looked, and they, they had these Super 8 Blackhawk films. You yeah. remember those? Sure. And they had a bunch of uh, Keaton shorts. And I said, is there a way I can see these? And I said, well, I have a projector. You can go up in the, in the conference room. Yeah. And I went up in the conference room and watched these, these films. And I, and I thought, I'm going to make a film while I'm on the weekends. Yeah. So I started making my own Buster Keaton film. In Casper, Wyoming. In, on the weekends. And I recruited a guy, the local drunks and the guy in the pool hall and a gal that I met. Oh, I was even so bored. I even had a job as a waiter at the Ramada Inn. Yeah. And I met a gal there named Rebecca <laughs> Schmidt. And I got her to be my, my, my heroine. And, uh -huh. and the guy in the shoe repair place. Black and white. Uh, no, I shot it in color, Super, Super 8, 8, and called it Heart Luck, uh -huh. because there was a lost Keaton film called Hard Luck. Uh -huh. But uh, So really, my I guess that was it, you know? So I went back to NYU for a year, but then I thought... What happened to that film? Uh, it's around somewhere. I don't know. It's in a closet somewhere, probably, uh -huh. you know? But uh, I sent it back to all the people. I wasn't able to go myself, but I had it copied, and they had a big... It was in the middle of winter in Cass, Wyoming, and they had a get-together, and all these disparate people that I'd kind of pulled together in the town. Oh, really? To they the went film. to the screening? They had a little screening yeah. there, and I, I thought that was really cool. I, 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 that's what I love about filmmaking. I, I Again, it goes back to that... Ensemble you know, you said cool. something too on one of your interviews about you know we're all kind of in this. You, you, you got to stay out of that weird mind trap, that place where you're isolated and you're and you're in that. It's just that. It's like a. I describe it as this this void, you yeah. know, this abyss. Yeah. And you sometimes you kind of circle it, but boy, yeah. you don't want to get in there. And and you you said it. It was a beautiful line. I wrote it down about about you. You got to stay engaged with people. Yeah. That's what saves us. Yeah. Being engaged with other people. I know. Believe I, me. I think that's a beautiful thing, Mark. And, yeah. And, and I want to say, you you bring that to these interviews. Yeah. And when I heard that, I go, God, that that that's really it. Oh yeah, because if you, especially now, uh, you know the you know, now more than ever toppling off, toppling into the pit <laughs> of self is easy, you know. And I, I I've done a I've done enough excavating. Yeah, me, me too. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> the tough thing about this business, you know, people always see the success. Or yeah. You had this and you right. had that and you had an interesting career. Right. But I have so many stories that didn't work out and, and all the times I've been left fallow yeah. where I've had to be out there trying to hustle a project where I know I've got a good project. I shouldn't be out there hustling. I should be working. Right. You know, but right. it's just not that way. Yeah. It's not because I'm special. It's just these are my skill set. And yeah, I don't don't waste it. I want to give something. But you've been you've been pretty fortunate, you know, in the last years anyways. You've done some great work. Last year I got to a point where I was so I don't know, confused, dismayed. Really? Uh just just wondering, kinda of like, I've been trying to get a movie called The Bottoms Off the Ground, a great script. Yeah. By, uh, by Joe Lansdale. Yeah. Great author, Southern Gothic thriller. I got Brent Hanley to adapt it. He, he had written Frailty for yeah. me. And you directed a, that one? Uh, yeah, Frailty. Yeah. I wanted to do, and, I, and God, I spent a whole year trying to get this thing off the ground and trying to get it to actors. And you know, if you don't have an offer with it, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, it's, it's a it's a it's a chance to play a, a blue collar Atticus Finch. It's a it's a movie that's if it's made well for a good price with good cast, it'll it'll be a classic forever. Yeah. I don't know about a lot of things, yeah. but I, I know 
about some things yeah. in the movie business and a movie script that, yeah. that has a has a pedigree. And I got so, I, and, but I had to get out of the house, and I was driving Louise crazy, and yeah. my wife, and uh, so I saw, I went by uh, Habitat for the Humanity in Ventura, uh-huh. and they were building some houses out in Santa Paul, and they said, yeah, just show up, and they'll give you a tool belt. So I, I started doing that and uh, building houses. And I this guy's kind of looking at me as we're kind of putting in this these shingles and stuff with a you know with this air gun thing. You know, I'm actually taking my hand off. You know, yeah, what yeah. the hell am I doing? Yeah. But it was it felt good to be doing just doing something. Yeah, and know? helping out. Yeah, but yeah, that's true because when you get you know you know stuck in a project that's you know kind of going nowhere or you're hitting your head against the wall for something that is so big in your mind but you can't get it out of your mind. Yeah. into reality uh, yeah that's when you have those moments where it's sort of like you know i got to get my hands dirty somehow but i don't know anything else you no, see, i know what I, know. I do for a living takes a hundred people to yeah. make the to make the machine go round and to make the film you know right. so it's it's you know but luck. uh well so i mean that happened during like downtime from acting downtime from acting i guess to tell you the truth uh I really wanted to just be directing at this point. Yeah. I had two great outings. Yeah. I've had three times in my career where I've gotten to work in my own shop. Uh-huh. And they were the happiest times, most productive times, and weirdly enough, the most giving times because well, I, yeah. I was empowering other people. Yeah. I produced a film that Mark Wahlberg and I and Juliana Margulies starred in called Traveler years yeah. ago. That was after Twister. I was able to get that off the ground. I produced it, and I, I was very involved with it. A guy named Jack Green, Clint Eastwood cinematographer, directed it, but I was very involved. I didn't see it. It's a nice little picaresque kind of film about um, Irish-American gypsies, travelers, oh, yeah. flim-flam guys. And, uh, and I got to direct uh, Frailty, which was a great experience. And then I got to do a, a Disney film, my agent, Brian who I've been with forever, who's really thrown stuff at me, uh-huh. like the series Training yeah, yeah. Day. I thought I can't do that. Yeah, it's it's you should try it. And weirdly enough, it's been a fun experience. But because again, I'm engaged. God, just keep me in. God, keep me. Yeah, engaged. yeah, yeah. But I did the places. Greatest, yeah, the yeah. places. I did the greatest game ever played for Walt Disney, and it's a sports film. But Frailty and and uh, Greatest Game are kind of considered classics of their genre. I'm very proud of those films, but. I got to not just empower myself. Right. I got to give other people a leg oh, up yeah. and, and give this actor a shot and, yeah. and give this guy a chance to do this. Set deck, set design. The comp- yeah, the composers from everybody on down. And uh, Set deck always kills me because you walk into these things you're like, this is crazy how perfect this is. It's I love or I love the... I'm... I, I'm true to the art department yeah, yeah i like to say i made the ultimate sacrifice i became part of the set as yeah, the yeah. actor <laughs> but no I, I i love i love art direction my dad loved art direction that's one of the first things he called my attention yeah. i remember coming out of dr no with my dad and he was like yeah the art direction and dr no's hideout and stuff and he was like yeah it was cool and that girl she was great too daddy yeah. oh yeah she ursula Andress, she's all right yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> you know that kind of stuff it's great that he gave you that. You know, uh, we talked about Stella Adler. Stella Adler doesn't get the credit as far as anything good that I've done. But yeah. a guy named Vincent Chase. Yeah. He was one of the last of the studio coaches. I met him after Lords of Discipline, which was my first gig. And there were two actors who had completely different lo- styles. One was very gregarious. The other one was very cerebral. Michael Bean and a guy named Rick Rossovich. And they found out their only formal training had been with this guy, Vincent Chase. He had a studio on Sunset next to the Rock and Roll Ralphs. I started working with him. That's how I started getting hired. Because I would go and work on the script with him. He would get my subtext and give me ideas 
and ways to to spin it in a different way or come in with a different take on it and that's like a coach and he's, he's a coach and he's been my coach to this day he's, still around he's 87 years old and you go to him with a project you, you yeah. get the you get the project and then you hash it out absolutely and I, I never one time i never not even once did i ever leave after se- seeing him and talking about a project that i didn't go god i'm glad i took that time because yeah. I, I gleaned an insight i should get i should do that if i get if i go back to this show next year look acting is kind of like a it's kind of like boxing yeah you know and you're going into the ring and you don't know and and, and if you got a guy in your corner going okay this guy's a is a, is a body puncher yeah you want to you want to you want to you want to tire him out you want to just dance around him you want to just, just stick and jab or whatever that is yeah. i'm not a boxer well that was and a funny it, thing i talked to ethan hawk yeah and he said before he did training day uh, yeah. he watched he watched a bunch of uh Denzel Washington movies like like you watch game films. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I could see doing that. Yeah, like it's like this guy, he's big. Well, he, let me tell you, that's like getting thrown into the polar bear cage, you know. And they put they put raw hamburger all over you, you know, because there's certain actors that can do, they'll just they'll just just they just just play with you, like yeah, a cat and a mouse. I mean, you know, and just maul you just constantly. Does that happen to you? I went toe to toe with Denzel. You did my biggest scene in the movie, I had two guns. I, I put is I have to shoot on my first day. Yeah. So damn, I'm in my I'm I'm chugging a bottle of red wine in my trailer. Yeah. Or I'm going in there. Yeah. But it, it worked out okay. I, I was ready. Yeah. I, I was ready. So when like what was your uh. What was the big like? Because it looks like I'm looking at the at your filmography. Like you did a lot of little bits here and there. I know you got to ask me about one film. Which one? The one that I to this day, if I do a thousand movies, will be at the top of my obituary. What is it? Weird Science. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird because you know you're you're one of these guys where you know you look at the. The, at the filmography like oh yeah oh shit right <laughs> oh fuck that's right well, oh god it's a story of my life no but it's not bad you're a character it, it's not bad i never tombstone had stone was like i thought oh, that sounds that great it's a great movie i got to be with uh sam elliott and kurt russell and val kilmer. yeah Everybody. val kilmer's uh he, doc holiday was great oh he killed it he's a great actor and but a like great guy. when yeah. you got here in the 70s i mean what would the was it a party was it like i mean what was it like just you know going down sunset strip like that's the thing about the mid 70s that always kills me is that like it was such a more intimate business all the big stars were like hanging out at dantana's or somewhere yeah but i was on the outside looking in i came out here uh you know i i, I but it must have been a party i you not for me oh shit. not for me all right i'm going down hollywood boulevard on, yeah. a, on a on a bus uh, down to Wilcox and Fountain, where I had this job on this Encyclopedia Britannica thing for two weeks. Yeah, and I'm sitting next to a transvestite, which is kind of blowing my mind because you yeah. know I'm from, I'm from Texas, and God, I maybe you know, I, you know, I, you know, watching Deliverance completely traumatized me. <laughs> me too. Uh, you know, <laughs> squeal like a pig, indeed. Good Lord, I didn't remember how graphic it was because <laughs> oh my God, my grandparents it's, brought me by accident. Oh, to what? That movie. That's a real accident. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and then like when I saw it recently. I'm like, holy shit! It's a lot more it's, graphic it's, than I thought. It's it's still it's so disturbing. Oh no! And Ned Beatty, talk about a brave performance. Oh no! Kidding. And the way he's so shamed after that happens, and yeah. he can't even look at the rest of them, and they're all kind of saying hey, it's okay. And yeah. No, it, it's it's nah. it's never gonna be okay again. <laughs> but I'm, so I'm going I'm going down I'm going down Hollywood Boulevard in this bus and. And I'm looking around, and, and at those days, God, uh, Hollywood was so run down. And, you know, they've been trying to gentrify yeah, it for years, yeah. but 
74, going down this thing, and I'm thinking, God, I missed this place by 50 years. Yeah. Because I was really into the old Hollywood. Sure, I, sure. I, last night, I'm watching yeah, yeah. I'm watching Turner Classic Movies. I'm watching uh, Miracle in the Rain, and I'm yeah, just sobbing yeah. watching Jane right, Wyman. Right. And uh, I guess I, I've always been more into the history of the town and the golden age and things like that. And I always felt like I missed it. But so weird science, that was your, uh, you consider that your big break? Yeah. There is a, there was a couple of anecdotes I wanted to, the, yeah. I was thinking of them on the way over here that I think you, you would appreciate. What? Uh, well, you know, that, that was a big supporting role and I had to audition my ass off. Mike Fenton was the head of casting at Universal at the time. And John Hughes was the man. Yeah. I remember he had his, I think he had Hitchcock's old bungalow on the lot and, and they were having the auditions initially not there. But then as I got the callbacks, I got to go in and read for, and he sat in on the readings and I started throwing in stuff again, my dad being the, the, the old salesman, the road guy that he had been. Yeah. My dad, uh, he, he would come back with all kinds of expressions and things. And, and, uh, so I thought I'd learned enough from the audition process that, you know, look, yeah, if you're doing a, if you're doing a Tennessee Williams play, you're not going to change the the wording, right? Or Shakespeare or, or yeah. Arthur Miller, but in a screenplay, it really is a blueprint thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, and it's malleable and in you, the audition. And you try, and you try yeah, think you just want everybody's going to gonna say the same lines. Right, right. Why not say say it a different way? Right. Or do something. Make, yeah. make them look up. Yeah. I built a time bomb one time. A, a briefcase bomb and took it into an audition for what just to get their uh, attention for what some crappy pilot i did what what was the angle like i'm gonna blow us up well the guy's supposed to be a terrorist he didn't have any lines but he's always kind of making stuff yeah and, yeah and i did the one line they said thank you very much i said i'm not finished yet then i opened up the briefcase and they were, and it just started saying oh you know the military taught me everything i know about explosives uh -huh. and then i get the call from this i had a horrible agent at the time you know just real b grade yeah agent. He says, don't ever pull a stunt like that again. And there was a pause, and he went, you start work on Tuesday. <laughs> you know? You got but, it. But huh? I had all these auditions for yeah. Weird Science, and I just threw all these crazy things in there, like um, some of my most famous lines from that movie are lines my dad would tell me, like, you know, I have this line where I see Michael Hall and, and Alain Mitchell-Smith, they're all drunk, and I... And I go up to him and I say to him, I said, hey, how about a nice greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray? <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and people love that. And that was something my dad would say to me and my brother on Saturday morning, if he thought, or Sunday morning, we were hung over from being, you know, in high school, from being at a beer bust, you know, <laughs> right, out, right. out near a campfire right. in the middle of nowhere <laughs> yeah. in Alito, Texas. He'd like to go, God, hey, Dave, you know, Bill, hey, man, Billy, you know, yeah, look like you're not feeling too good. <laughs> I'm kind of green. Hey, hey, I got just the thing. And he had this, I guess there was a sardonic nature to my yeah, father. He right. loved, he loved real kind of gallows humor. Yeah, yeah. He loved kind of a, he had a Dickensian kind of, yeah. I don't know, weirdness. Yeah. And, uh, and so I threw that stuff in the audition. I get the job. And then, uh, and then I started developing the character, but a lot of this stuff came from these really weird camps that I went to with my dad. And my dad would send my brother, Bob, and I yeah. to these camps. We went to two camps. Uh, one was in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Yeah. Started going there. It was an eight-week camp. I went there when I was, I, I was eight years old. Wow. It was the summer of 63. It's a long time to be away. 
But I had my brother there, and I loved it. I had the best time there. But these camps all had these weird rites of passage. And they were all kind of cruel. Yeah. You know, the upper class, you know, the upper campers, you right. know, it would kind of sure. hazing. Yeah, kind of yeah. hazing thing. We had this thing at this other camp. It was called the Rough Ride. And you had to go on the Rough Ride. And your first, it, it was for the younger campers, but if it was your first year at the camp, even if you were coming in as an upper camper, or even if you were a first-year counselor, you had to go on the rough ride. Yeah. And I'd heard legendary stories about the rough ride. Uh-huh. And it was a ride that started at the, at midday, and then it went to do, to to the night. Yeah. And and it, and it had a legend because these guys would ride through at the camp, completely covered in mud, yelling, and it just looked like they'd been on a hell ride. At the end of the day, they'd yeah. ring a bell. We'd all yeah. come up to the main lodge, and they'd ride by. So we go out on this this camp. You know, these guys uh, these guys would come. These counselors, everybody was really nice. You know, camp, the counselors yeah. are nice. But when the rough ride, they'd le- read these lists at the lunch hour. There were about five rough rides. You didn't know which one you were going to be on. And all of a sudden, these counselors, nice guys, they come in with kind of war paint on. Uh-huh. And just kind of like, just kind of a pissed off expression on their face. And they go, we're going to read the candidates for today's rough ride. And when you hear your name, you stand up and you say, ready to ride, sir. So they call out your name, Mark Marin or Bill Pass. Yeah. You jump up, you go, ready to ride, sir. Yeah. You know, and, and they kind of be like, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, we're gonna see how ready you are. <laughs> you know, psychological nightmare. Yeah. And we did all this stuff. Another one we had was, which I used in Weird Science. There's a funny moment where I uh, go downstairs the next morning, and there's this, and, and, and there's Elon Mitchell Smith, and he's and he's got. He's got Kelly LeBrock's panties on, but at yeah. first I don't see that, and I see that he's got a nice omelet there. And I go, hey, man, that looks pretty good. Let me see that. And then I throw these eggs up against the bottom of the cabinet, and I put the pan out, and they just drip down. I go, now make yourself one, dickweed. <laughs> yeah. And then, and so that came from a gag on the rough ride. We, you, you ride everybody up to this, you know, this mountain river, just rushing river, and there's this huge bluff across the river going straight up about 200 feet. And at the top are this Indian paintbrush. It's, yeah. it's wildflower. Yeah. It's the state flower of Wyoming. And so you ride up against this. on the rough ride where I got to be the initiator. Yeah. I went crazy. Yeah. I, I find one of the counselors had to say, cool it, Tex. They used to call me Tex, the yeah. little, little Tex. Right. So I, the guy gets across the river. So we tell them that they have to go across the river, go up the hill, bring the Indian paintbrush back to their horse and put it in their bridle. So the guy go. you see these guys go across there, they're getting washed down the river, they're climbing up the damn hill, they get the thing, they come back down the hill, they try to come across the river, get washed down the river, and then the guy comes up and you go, hey, let me see that. Hey, that's pretty good, you know, that's really good. Now go get yourself one, dickweed. <laughs> and then the guy had to go back across the river, and it was that kind of stuff. So I told John Hughes these stories, and he went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah we got we to figure out how to do that. And, and I had a great, it was, one, it was the first time I was really empowered in yeah. a role where where the guy on the other side, the director, was just egging me on and giving great. me so much confidence, and I love John for that. And what about what happened to Big Love? Big Love, we went for five seasons, and kind of, we kind of told our story. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, there was uh, not planned to be more. Mark Olson and Will Sheffer, the guys who they they made the show. Now, when you got into they, that, they, they kind of felt like they told told their story. I mean, I, they, they it had gone kind of. Yeah, it's distance. How much research? How how obsessed did you get with Mormonism? Uh, yeah, you know it's it's great when you get a task, a specific task yeah. as an actor to learn a profession or right. to learn a culture or to learn a history, 
because it's fun. The book that kind of really was the primer for me was the book by um, John Krakauer called uh-huh. Under the Banner of Heaven. Uh-huh. And in that story, there's a con- kind of a gruesome contemporary story. But what I do remember being completely absorbed and, and, and captivated and, and, and fascinated with was the, was the history of Joseph Smith, how this whole thing started, yeah, how yeah. he dug up the golden tablets and how he started this religion and, and then how Brigham Young continued it after uh, jo- uh, Joseph Smith was assassinated. And how he and they and and they and they these people wanted to do their own thing so badly they went they went as far into the wilderness as they could, to where nobody would bother them, and you know polygamy was was legal in their religion till I believe eighteen ninety three. I used to know all this stuff, but uh, goes in and out. But um, and then there were the fundamental sects that continued practicing. Right. You know, true Mormonism, which was a, was about the uh, principle. And, and that's still pl- going on. Plural marriage. Yeah. Still going on. Uh, yeah, still going on. You bet. So, because I thought that was the interesting part about your, your character is that you came from that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a great character. And, but, the, but the first season, we were kind of trying to f- really kind of define... The, the genesis and and the, the you know the origin stories of these characters and uh-huh. what was interesting was by season two uh, Mark and Will had come up with the idea that I had been a, you know this whole idea of these lost boys yeah these kids get to be you know they go into puberty they yeah. start looking at the girls and right. these fundamentalist uh, uh, compound sex or whatever you want to call them and uh, and all of a sudden the older men are like you know we got to get them out of here they're getting a little frisky. And that and, was a and real it, thing? Yeah, it's a real thing. And if you you get into an infraction, I think that's really how John Krakauer got involved in it, through the Lost Boys. It's yeah. sad. These kids are thrown thrown out of their homes. Because they're a threat to uh, they're a threat, they're, pussy supply. They're damn straight. Man. They're all <laughs> damn straight. <laughs> but uh, but they're, also, they're also, if any infraction, they get drummed out. Yeah. And so my character, they kind of built this story that... that and this was something that kind of uh, evolved through the first season, that, through my talks with Mark and Will, and how we would get it, finding a real root to this guy to give him really a just this real weird foundation where he had his kind of foot in both camps. Yeah, and uh, and and so they, they they had this story, that, and I tell this story. I think it was season three or four. Uh, where I try to run for office, yeah, and the guy tries to smear me because there's a there's a there's a mug shot of me at seventeen, yeah, and he's put it all over the right, hall, right, and, right. and I come out, and there's a hush, and I bring the photo out, and I say, yeah, I guess you guys have all seen this. He said, and I I have one of the greatest speeches I had as the character where I talk about, yeah, uh, when I was fifteen years old, my dad told me to get back get in the truck, and we drove into Salt Lake, and we and all of a sudden he said, hey, get out of the car. I said, what do you mean? He said, just just get out. I got the car. He left me there. That first night, I slept in a ditch. I was, I was scared. I was cold. I didn't know what to do. And then I met these other kids. And and uh, yeah, I did things for cash that haunt me to this day. And I love that. And I just like, whoa, that's now yeah, that's a good spin. Yeah, that's a good background for a character. That's dark. You yeah. know, we didn't explore some of that darkness, but it was it was it was there as the underpinning. But as a political guy. candidate, taking responsibility for it. Yeah. Yeah. Really taking it to him. Sure, yeah, but yeah, I get what me. you're saying. I did things for cash yeah, that yeah. haunt me. To sure, this we day. all get it. You know, I yeah. can say that as Bill. Yeah. Mark. <laughs> yeah. Hollywood. Can Mark say that? <laughs> no, I I, I I hosted a game show. <laughs> that was about <laughs> in terms of business, that was about as dark as it got for me. Oh God. Mormon church respond to it you know i do you ever get mormons coming up to you going you like know you kind of hit it uh, or yeah, you didn't get it right or no i mostly you got it you got it right yeah but uh 
you know, the thing of it is, it's like, look, all of us in our family trees, you know, uh, have strange relatives, strange things that happen, good, yeah. good and bad. There's histories of families, histories of cultures that, that yeah. you want to not talk about. You want to make them go away. But it's your history. It's sure. not you. Sure, sure. Yeah, I know. So it's a weird thing. So I, I, I thought here was a, I thought with that we we kind of through the show put a very human face on a religion that a lot of people who aren't part of that religion always thought of as a cult. Uh-huh. And to me, I thought they would have maybe embraced it a little more. I think it was a guilty pleasure, more of a secret thing. I'm, sh- I'm sure they watched it. And, and, and again, Mark and Will were very responsible and, and did a lot of research to get it right. But really what they were trying to do was, mo- was more use this idea of polygamy in a modern world as taboo th- social to make a, thing. a fun family show to make a fun family <laughs> exactly yeah. and kind of and use it as a prism to refract you know uh age old yeah uh, ideas and and society's taboos a- a- about religion marriage yeah, yeah. all these different sex sure all these things it's great so what have you found in the uh in the in the stacks of your dad's papers that have blown you away other than that picture you showed me I found a letter from Bing Crosby. Oh, really? I found a letter from uh, President Johnson. Uh, it's always, oh, I'm always better from hearing from you, John. Oh, really? <laughs> Total politician. Uh, ben Hogan, hey, John, I'm going to have that my annual invitation. I'd like you to join, but try to have some fun, <laughs> you know, and uh, d- different, different things. Uh, my dad was a great correspondent. Uh-huh. He, but he didn't write long letters to people. You don't want to bore them, but he just kind of, you know, if he'd had a nice dinner, like say he'd had this interview, yeah. you'd get a letter from him. And he'd yeah, just be yeah. good, Mark, I really enjoyed meeting you. And I guess it's a great, great show. Oh, I yeah. wish you continued it's nice, success. nice social yeah. etiquette. Very good. Uh-huh. Very good. So you're actually getting to know him even more through uh, this yeah. stack of stuff. Yeah. Was he, was he a perfect man? Was he a virtuous man? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think my parents kind of dropped the ball by the time we all became teenagers. <laughs> what do you mean? But, uh, oh, they just seemed like this, they kind of checked out. I, I felt like I'm seeing things that I feel could have been handled a little better, you know? Sure. But again, like if, if, you know, your parents are kind of gods to you as a child. Oh, no, I know. And when they live a long time, eventually you get to that point <sighs> where the statute of limitations yeah. on telling your kids things somehow runs out in their head either yeah. because of age or other things. And, they tell you shit, and you're like, I didn't need to know that, really. I didn't need to hear that. <laughs> I really didn't need to know that. I didn't yeah. want to know that part about you. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, got to give a shout-out to two guys that worked with you. Yes, One, sir. One's an actor. Yeah. Uh, MC Ganey. Oh, great. He loved, he said he loved working oh, on the show. Oh, he's great. With, with you work and, with him? Uh, yeah, we worked on a few things together. He's a great we guy. We did Club Dread together. We yeah. had a great time. But he's he a real said, He was so happy to be, he said something funny. He's a big, big admirer of yours. Mark. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, when he had to hold a baby. He said, like, this is the first time in a movie, I think, where I've held a baby and I wasn't, like, going to kill it for something. Like, <laughs> or like, eat it. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, barbecue yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think uh, Ron Perlman was with him and they yeah. ran a bookstore or something. He yeah, said it was, it was kind of the climatic episode. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and a stand-up Dean Del Rey. Dean Del Rey. Mine. Oh, yeah. Dean. Dino. Yeah. Dean Del Rey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he loves you, man. Oh, great. And I, I had a great time talking to you. Was it okay for you? Oh, buddy, it was great. Worked really, out? Really fun. Thanks, Thanks man. so much. Yep. Cheers. All right, that was fun. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTFPod needs. I'll be in uh, 
Durham, North Carolina on uh, the 17th, Friday. I'll be in Charlotte on the 18th. And uh, a lot more dates coming up. If you go to WTFPod.com slash tour, you can find them and come see me. And we'll hang out for a little while. Hopefully, we'll have a nice time. All right? Oh. I don't have any. I don't have a guitar with me. Boomer lives!